Well, good morning, church. Good to see everybody here today. And if there's one thing I know about every person who's here today, I know this. We all love stories, don't we? That's how God has wired every human being. That's why when Jesus came and taught about life-changing eternal principles, he often did so in the form of a story. That's why some of our favorite stories are about ordinary people who do extraordinary things, right? That's why we love movies like Rocky, and we love movies like Gladiator and Braveheart and The Patriot, right? Tell me, guys, how many of you have not pictured yourself going 12 rounds with Apollo Creed, right? Or you've not pictured yourself standing up before a corrupt emperor saying, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, general of the armies of the north, loyal servant of Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome, right? Or painting your face white and blue, galloping on a horse, charging, giving men the charge to go right into battle in Braveheart. Right? These are stories that inspire us, and we'd like to think that we were that kind of person, but then we get a picture of something else. Our own inadequacies, right? We feel inadequate. We feel inadequate relationally. We feel inadequate intellectually. We feel inadequate uh, financially. We feel inadequate spiritually. So this series called Kingdom Changers is for all the men and women who are here today who realize that you were created to do something more. You were created to do something great. You were created to do something that matters and that will live beyond just your own life. And today, the inspiration for our story comes from a very ordinary man. He wasn't a president. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't have any money. Just an ordinary guy, and his name is Nehemiah. And what Nehemiah was, was he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, last week, we learned about King Xerxes. Artaxerxes is his son. And again, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to him, which is a very important job. Let me tell you what a cupbearer did. A cupbearer didn't just hand the king their wine in their goblet. That's what we think when we think about that. No, their job was very, very important. See, many times in days like that, there were sinister plots and ploys to try to execute and assassinate the king, the leader, because there were other people wanting to be in charge. So often a way they would attempt to do that is to poison the king's food. So the cupbearer's job was to come along, and before the king took a sip, before the king took a bite, he would first take a sip, and he would take a bite of the king's food. And if he's starting to chow down and give him a thumbs up, the king's like, all right, bring it on. But if in the middle of that, the cupbearer starts to go like that, then the king would be like, ah, I lost my appetite today, right? And that was Nehemiah's job, to be the cupbearer. Now, Nehemiah lived in Persia, just like we learned last week with Mordecai and Esther, right? Because Nehemiah's people had been taken there by exile years before, when the Persians swooped down, invaded Israel, and took many of their people back captives to the Persian Empire. And listen to this. Nehemiah receives word. He hears that the walls of the sacred city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of his homeland, the walls have been broken down and destroyed, and the gates have been burned. Listen to what it says here in Nehemiah 1-2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Why do they feel disgrace? Here's why. Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So the people are trickling back 
to their homeland. And when they get to Jerusalem, they see that its gates and its walls have been utterly destroyed. There's nothing but piles of rubble, piles of heartache in the hearts of the people that are in Jerusalem. So there's thousands of people who are now back in Jerusalem, but there's no government, there's no resources, which means there's no jobs, and there's very, very little in terms of hope. So what do you do when God has put on your heart a burden for something, to fix something, to restore something, and you feel very inadequate You don't feel up to the task. Your heart's telling you to do one thing, but then your mind says you don't have what it takes. What do you do when there's something that you know needs to be done, but you don't know how to go about it? Well, Nehemiah is going to show us. And I think it's a great template for how you and I ought to approach anything big that God lays on our hearts. Here's the first thing that he does. He sits down and he weeps. He cries. Can I tell you all something? Crying is very biblical. We see Jesus crying. We see the great men and women of God who have a heart for God just weeping over the state of things. In fact, there's a biblical word for for crying and mourning like this. You know what it's called? Lamenting. Where you just weep over the current state of things because of of what they've come to. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah 1.4, when I heard these things, when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and its gates had been burned with fire, I sat down and wept this is a city that's a thousand miles away from nehemiah he's nowhere near it but just because it's out of his sight does not mean it's out of his mind and it's very very personal for him and it just breaks his heart thinking that the the city of god where where worship of the one true god happened is in ruins and it breaks his heart let me ask you a question this morning what breaks your heart When you survey the world in which we live and you see things happening in our community, outside of our community, when you see it happening globally, what really wrenches your heart? What is it that makes you just want to sit down and cry and lament that things are the way they are? Is it the fact that a great portion of the world's population has very little in terms of food or in terms of clean drinking water? Is it the fact that you know that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of young women, young girls who are in the sex traffic industry being abused and not allowed to live with dignity and the freedom that their creator made them to live in? Is it an injustice you see somewhere? Is it the fact that you know that your mom or dad or your brother or your sister or your, one of your children or all of your children, that if they died today, they would not be with you in eternity because they are nowhere near following Jesus? Or maybe it's the current state of our country, just so much division and so much animosity, and you're trying to figure out how in the world can I, can I be someone who brings people together? And it goes beyond just a Facebook post, right? What is it that really breaks your heart this morning? Can I encourage you to do something? Let it move you. Let it crush you. Let it bring you to the point of tears, and don't you dare apologize for it, and don't you dare be embarrassed by it. Because God has put that in you. So we sit down and we just cry. And we lament. But that's not where it stops. 
The next thing we do is we get on our knees and we pray. This is what Nehemiah did. Listen to this, Nehemiah 1.4. For some days I mourned and fasted, and listen, I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. This is a very personal prayer for Nehemiah. He's not just confessing his sins. He's confessing the sins of the entire nation. And he's saying, God, would you please help us? And it's not just a one and done kind of prayer like he offered it up, you know, five, ten minutes, one day. This is the heartbeat of his prayer for four solid months. The same prayer over and over. I want you to notice something. Did you notice the attention given to prayer here and the attention given to prayer last week in our story about Esther shows that kingdom changers understand something very critical. If you don't involve God in the process, if you don't ask for God's leading and God's intervention on those things that break and crush your heart, you're dead in the water. You're going nowhere. You need someone with much higher authority and power and the ability to do something when you feel powerless. In fact, I think that's why we often can sometimes feel frustrated in the situations that we find ourselves in. We'll find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to do, our heart's broken, we feel like we need to do something, and so we pray for five to ten minutes about something, and after we say, amen, we don't even give God time to move. We say, okay, now what do we need to do? But Nehemiah, daily, for four months, took all his emotion, took his sadness, took his fear, his angst, all that kind of, oh, something's got to be done, and he took it to the one place where he knew there was hope and possibility change the throne of god that's where nehemiah went for four months in fact 17 prayers 17 different instances of prayers are recorded throughout the book of nehemiah that this whole thing is just bathed in prayer folks here's what i know this morning represented in the lives of those who are here today most likely, some of you have something that represents in your life this rubble next to me. That's your marriage right now. It wasn't always that way. There was a time when it was strong. There was a time when it was secure. There was a time when you felt confidence in it and could stand upon it. But now, because of something, it's rubble. Maybe that represents your financial state right now. You used to be running in the black because of some bad decisions and because you didn't involve God in, in your money, that's your financial state of affairs right now. It's just rubble. Some of you might have friendships, family relationships, where trust was breached or hurt came in, and that's the state of your friendships. That's the state of your family right now. It's just rubble, and you have no clue where to start. You don't know how to put one brick on top of the other because it all just seems like it came crashing down just like that. And I know... You've wept, you've cried, but have you prayed? Have you taken your tears to the one who can actually do something about it and move on your behalf? See, it doesn't just stop there, though. It's not just me about me feeling burdened by something or crushed by something and even me taking it to God. If I'm going to take it to God and say, God, you do something, God's going to say, I'm going to do something through you. 
So you've got to be willing to take a stand. You've got to be willing to stand up and do something about it yourself as you feel God leading you to do it. Now, when you're the cupbearer to the king, you've got a pretty tight relationship with the king, all right? You, you see him face to face every day. The king knows your body language. Is it a good day or a bad day? And the king knew this about Nehemiah. It was always smiles on Nehemiah's face until one day he was sullen. And the king says, why? What's going on, my friend? And Nehemiah lets it flow. Listen to what it says here, Nehemiah 2.3. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what is it you want? Notice this here. Then I what? Prayed. Then I prayed. So it's like... Nehemiah shoots up this kind of flare prayer to God, saying, okay, God, this has got to be you and me now. It can't just be me and my words. God, I need you to give me the words to say to this king. He's totally relying on God. So then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Here's a lesson for some of you today. The king knew Nehemiah's work ethic. He knew Nehemiah's character. He knew Nehemiah's good attitude. And if you want God to intervene on your behalf, you make sure you're making a good impression for God on those around you because that's what enabled Artaxerxes to say yes to his servant because he knew his servant's character. And then Nehemiah gets really bold. Nehemiah says this, listen, there's going to be people around the surrounding lands who do not like the idea that I'm going back to my homeland and rebuilding the city of God. They're going to be against that. So what I need from you, king, I need these letters with your royal seal telling people that I encounter that if they mess with us, they're going to have to deal with you. And then Nehemiah gets really bold. He says, king, on top of protection, I need materials. I need some lumber, I need some beams, I need some drywall, I need some quickcrete, I need some trowels and some mortar and some wheelbarrows. So he basically gives him his Home Depot list. And the king finances a lot of this project and he sends an army with Nehemiah for his safety to make sure he safely arrives back in Jerusalem. This is a pagan king. Funding something that will bring glory to the God of Israel. Isn't it remarkable what God can do if we simply involve him and ask him to take control? Now, like Nehemiah, again, many of you have been broken by something. Cried out to God. But we've got to dry our tears. There comes a time for the tears to dry and we got to pull ourselves up, and we got to act, and we've got to do something. You want to grow deeper in your relationship with God? Join a Bible study. Do something. You want to connect with other believers and followers of Christ? Join a community group. Do something. Has God given you a vision or an idea of something that, that you just want to explore? 
Take an online class. Listen to a podcast. Read some things. Explore it a little bit. Do something. Some of you young men in here, you want to get a date? Let me help you. Take a shower, right? Get a shirt with a collar. Sell your PS4. Go to Target. Because that's where all the women go to get things they don't need, right? So just go to Target, hang out. You might find somebody there. Now, even though Nehemiah had his heart broken, he's cried his tears, he's prayed his prayers and taken action to do something, here's what Nehemiah reminds us of that I'm sure some of you experienced. Whenever you take a step out to do something for God, opposition is always going to step in. We forget that we are in a battle that's not against flesh and blood. It's the spiritual powers and authorities who are working to make sure the name of Jesus does not get exalted, does not get spread. So when you take a step out in faith to do something great for God, you are a threat to hell itself. And they will take all measures to silence you. So, expect opposition. This certainly came Nehemiah's way. He makes his way back to Jerusalem and sure enough, things are just as bad as he'd been told. And on top of the monumental task of just rebuilding, now he has to face people who are actively, daily pushing against him, trying to squelch his dream and his vision. Listen what it says here in Nehemiah 4.1. When Sanballat, who was a leader of the Samaritans, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Friends, even taking the smallest step in a God-honoring way, you are going to face opposition in ways that we don't even recognize or ways we don't even give credit to the forces of darkness. They are there. For instance, some of you have decided after a long time of not being at church, and I'm not even talking about anything to do with the coronavirus, I'm just talking about spiritual lethargy. You just kind of put your relationship with God on the back burner. And the day you decide, you and your wife and your kids are going to come back to church and you're going to engage God and you're going to make it a priority, on that very day, you had the worst fight, the worst argument that you've ever had on a Sunday morning. And you pulled into the church parking lot fuming and cussing at one another this morning. Do you think that's just coincidental? That that happens just at the time in life when you say, we're going to prioritize our relationship with God again. I remember when I was 16 years old, I felt the call of God to, to do ministry full-time in my life. And at the church I attended, the pastor asked me to come up and share that with the congregation so that the congregation would pray for me and, and that it would just be expressed to the church that, Solomon feels the call to go into ministry. And wouldn't you know, that Sunday, of all Sundays, we had the worst 
most disruptive, ugly fighting and argument in my family of any Sunday I can ever remember before we went to church. You think that was just coincidental? I don't. I think there was a force at play that was trying to derail a young man from following God's call in his life. And I'm glad I didn't listen to that voice. Maybe for some of you, you're trying to get out of debt so that you can use your money for more God-honoring, eternal things. And the moment you declared war on debt, wouldn't you know it, the car breaks down and the mechanic says that's going to be $2,000. Or maybe some of you say, you know what? Solomon's always encouraging us to serve. We've got open spots to serve here at the church and I need to be putting my hands and feet to use for Jesus, so I'm going to go serve in the twos and threes ministry. So you go down there all excited to serve those two and three-year-olds and everything's going great for about five minutes and you pick up a little boy and he pukes Fruit Loops all over your shirt. All these little things, all these little discouragements, all this opposition that can come. And I don't think it's all just coincidental, friends. We're in a war. We're in a battle. Light versus darkness. Good versus evil. Maybe God is calling you to this vision or this dream that he's put on your heart. And you've even had a hard time articulating it within yourself. But you go out on a limb one day and you share it with a friend. You say, this is what I feel like God is calling me to do and what he wants me to give up. And he's wanting me to lay it all on the line for him. What do you think? And they say, they, their response to you is, are you stupid? Who do you think you are? And someone you just trusted and laid your heart out there just crushed that dream within you. Listen to me, friends. The next time somebody says, you're too young, you're too old, you're too uneducated, you're too naive, you say, no, you know what? You're too negative. And I'm not going to let your criticism and your critical spirit keep the power of God suppressed in me, and I'm going to follow the dream that God has put inside of me. You tell them that. So just remember once you decide you're going to put your feet on a certain path, once you decide it's going to be God-honoring from here on out, you can expect opposition. The critics kept coming after Nehemiah time and time again. Listen to this, Nehemiah 4.7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They weren't supportive. They didn't say, how can we help? They were angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we, say the word, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. There again, we see their response to threat, their response to criticism was just to take it all to God, the one who could actually do something about it. Then in Nehemiah 6.2, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. Listen, friends. If your enemies ever want you to meet them in a place called Ono, you got to say, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm not going there. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. Five times his response was the same back to these guys. Nehemiah 6.3, so I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? 
In other words, Nehemiah's got this laser-like focus on this project that has to get done. He says, I'm not willing to step down from my ladder. I'm not willing to drop a hammer or anything for the sakes of people like you. God's got a project, and he's called me to do it, and it is going to get done, and it's going to get my full attention. I don't have time for people like you. And with his resilience and determination and prayer, listen to what happened. Nehemiah 6.15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. All the critics, all the naysayers, all the troublemakers around the area knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the only way this people could accomplish something like this magnitude in 52 days is they had to have divine help. I mean, think about the scoreboard when Nehemiah had arrived on the scene. The years that the walls had been destroyed, 92. The years people had been living in brokenness and shame, 92. The years people were stuck there without their walls, 92. The number of days it took to rebuild the walls of the city of God, 52 days. Amazing. It's amazing what can be accomplished when we invite God into it and say, I'm just a tool. Broken, I see a need, use me, God, to help fulfill it. You know, I told you last week, we're going to try to do some things in our services that can engage the youth, because we're not going to have youth programming for about another month and a half or so now. So we want to do some things that can engage the youth here at the church. So I'm going to need a couple families to kind of come up here and help me with something. Jason, I see that you're itching, aren't you? You're itching to come up here with your kids. Jason, why don't you come on up here if you would? Yeah, all of them. Brittany, come on up too, if you want. <laughs> Dan, Coors, why don't you come on up too, okay? Bring your kids up. You can't go hidden in here. Jason, I need you and your kids on this side over here. Huh? This is dangerous? All right. You got a little army right there that can help you out. And Dan's got an equally sized army. In fact, he's one up on you. Wendy, Wendy, you want to stay seated? You want to come up? Okay, you're going to sit right there. Okay. You're going to finally get a rest as a mom. Yeah, Dan, you and your kids go over here, okay? So, Jason, you go to your pile of rubble. All right. Dan, you go to your pile of rubble. Now, here's what I want you to do. When the music starts, you're going to have 90 seconds, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. Jason, I want you to build something that looks very strong and secure, like a wall should be, okay? But a wall doesn't need to be secure. It needs to be what else? Tall, right? That's why I got a big guy like Dan up here, okay? So, Dan, you do whatever it takes to build the biggest, tallest structure. And, Jason, you build something that looks very sturdy, and strong okay you got 90 seconds all right now do you guys have in mind what you want to do because i've given you so much time to think about this right okay so when you hear the music start we're going to give you a five second countdown 
Paul's going to start the music, and then I've got a 90-second timer that I'm starting here, and we're going to see how you guys do, okay? Five, four, three, two, one, go! like a nice tall wall over there. Let's give them a hand. Good job, Coors. And we got a nice sturdy wall over here. There's a second layer of bricks behind the front layer, so nobody's getting through that wall, right? Let's give the dogs a nice hand for their job this morning. Good job, everybody. Dan, looked like you were having struggle getting everybody to work together for the same project. Is that right? Is that how that works at home, Wendy? You tell them to do something, and everybody does their own thing, right? Good job, everybody. Thank you for giving us that Nehemiah experience in here this morning when it comes to building. Now, I'll tell you what I love about this story, the story of Nehemiah. I love that not only did God use an ordinary man to do an extraordinary thing, but here's what I love about this story, and I think we need to hear it today. There are absolutely zero miracles in this story. There's no burning bushes, there's no parting of Red Seas, there's no bricks flying down from heaven magically stacking themselves around the city of Jerusalem, there's no angels who descend with a trowel in the hand and some mortar putting the bricks together thinking we are the champions, right? There's none of that. There's just a man that in his brokenness has this big audacious dream to do something magnificent for the glory of God. He weeps about it, he gets on his knees and prays about it, he stands up and does something about it. He fights the opposition, and he sticks to it until the job is done. And as a result, people didn't look at the Jews and talk about how amazing they were. They looked at the God of the Jews, and the fear of God came over them, and they said they could only do what they did with the help of God himself. And if there's one thing that I want for our church, that whatever we do inside the walls here or outside the walls, that people will look at this church and say, you know what, I know the people that go there. I know their limited resources. And they can only do what they've done there. They can only pull off what they've pulled off there because the one true living God is among them and he's working and he's active. 
That's my prayer, and I hope that's your prayer too. Now listen to me. I got to have a little bit of a heart-to-heart with you for a moment, okay, about something. So listen up if you would. Just as Nehemiah had to go back to Jerusalem and kind of rebuild one brick at a time the walls that had been torn down, we've been trying to kind of rebuild one Sunday at a time. Church. All right? Because of the coronavirus and everything's happening each Sunday, we're just trying to build brick by brick brick to kind of get us back to where we once were. Now, we've delayed having children's programming until August 9th because we wanted to kind of be in sync with the schools and wanted to make sure things were safe and secure for our kids here. And I guess it's a good thing that we did because uh, Janet, who's in charge of our nursery through five-year-old program, recently told me that there's 30 open positions in that ministry, that for some reason or another, various reasons that those who once worked in that ministry are, are stepping down. Some of them maybe just don't feel safe with the, the sickness that's been going around. Some have been serving a long time and maybe just need a, a break. But that's not what we're here to talk about. The, what we're here to talk about is we've got some gaps, okay? Now listen to me, folks. Building a strong generation of Christ followers requires suitable programming for that age. We cannot have families coming through our doors on August 9th with babies and with preschoolers and five-year-olds, and we simply say to them, we have nothing for you. That is unacceptable in a church our size with what we want to do in the lives of these children. If we want to build kingdom changers, we have to be kingdom changers and invest in the lives of the least among us. These kids are probably not going to thank you. They're not going to write you letters. They're not going to give you a pat on the back. They're not going to buy your meal when you're out at Bob Evans someday. But they need you. They need your influence. They need your love. They need your time. They need your willingness to be able to sit down and just tell them how great Jesus is. And yeah, you might get puked on with Fruit Loops. But you know what? You're not building a wall. You're building a life. And if we want to be the kind of church that has an influence and an impact inside and outside the walls of this church, we've got to have men and women who step up to the plate and say, I'll take my turn. I'll do my once a month, one service a month, whatever it is. But friends... The call's gone out. Nehemiah, I assure you, did not build the walls of Jerusalem on his own. It took an army of people who said, yep, here I am. Use whatever I have. I can stack bricks. And for some of you, it's just a matter of rocking babies, loving babies, singing with kids, telling kids a story. It's not rocket science, I assure you. But we need people to step up because the last thing I want is for August 9th to come and for us to say, sorry, we're just about ourselves at this church. Not acceptable. And I hope you share that heart. And if you feel today compelled through what I said, talk to Janet, 
she'll be out in the foyer today, or please call her this week and say, I make myself available. Because we want to be as robust as we can as we try to get back to normalcy, as we try to rebuild the church back. We want to have everything in place. And that's going to require you. I can't work in the nursery or work in preschool at the same time I'm preaching up here. I'm one person, one body. Can't do it. But so others can have the benefit of what you've had, we need you to take your turn. So I'm asking you to please, please consider this. So with that in mind and with everything that we've heard about today, let's take a moment to pray before we go into a time of worship, okay? Father, we thank you for this story of Nehemiah, this, this great man, this ordinary man who did extraordinary things. Because he's let his heart be broken by things that break your heart. And he saw you as the solution. And he was willing to act himself. And when opposition came and he knew it would come, he was willing to stand his ground. And he saw the job through to the end. Father, I pray that we'll be that kind of a church. You'll give us visions and desires and, and that the people in this church will, will do things that they never saw themselves doing before, but because they serve a great big God who puts great big dreams in their hearts, they'll make themselves available so that their tears will turn into joy. Lord, thank you for being with us today, and we pray, Lord, as we come before your throne of grace, that you will accept this worship that we now give to you. We do this in the name of Christ. Amen.